Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. God knows all about your troubles. God knows why you are crying and how long you have been crying. God knows what you are struggling with and where you are stuck. God knows why you continue to struggle with things God has already taken away from you. God also knows why you keep going back and picking them up. God knows what you tell yourself and why you believe this is the best point of view. God knows where you are, where you are going, and why you believe that you should be further along the path. Yes, God knows all the questions that you have and why you still have no answers. God knows our challenges and God knows your potential. God knows all of the ins and the outs of why you feel in or out of touch with God. God knows you. It's important for you to know that when it feels most like there is no one, it simply isn't true. There is always someone, someone who is as concerned about your concerns as you are. God also knows that what you believe and put your faith in can make a world of difference in what you know and don't know. Therefore, to help you know this God who cares, we enter together into the Archbishop's Corner, where Archbishop Leonard Blair of Hartford will help direct our faith in the right direction. So thank you, Archbishop, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner, where you can reintroduce us to the God who cares, really cares about our concerns. How are you today? Very well, thanks. Well, I understand that synod preparation is well underway. Do you want to comment about that? Well, I'm very encouraged uh, that it's going to be coming up quickly, and uh, we've been working and praying very hard that our Archdiocesan Synod will be blessed and be fruitful and lead to a positive way forward uh, for our local church. Uh, so I'm, I think it's going to be very good. I'm having the opening Mass uh, very soon, and uh, the delegates from all the parishes of the Archdiocese plus various appointees from the clergy, religious, and, and other groups will, will be there. And you have big expectations for the outcome of the Synod? Well, I think we have to be uh, very sober about these things. You know, you, you, you hope and pray that it will—I'm I'm very confident that it will be a very positive thing. Mm -hmm. uh, when you engage that many people in preparing uh, and studying and discussing and being challenged to think about the life of our church in uh, the three counties of the archdiocese as we uh, move forward— I think that is good for them and for me and for everybody. I noticed that there are new groups uh, that have come into the Archdiocese, Focus and the New Catechumenate. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? Well, yes. You know, today, after after the Second Vatican Council in the years intervening years, there are many things have arisen in the Church that are partly inspired by uh, religious and clergy, other things inspired by laity. And um, there are two groups that I've highlighted recently that have come to the Archdiocese. The first is FOCUS, which is a uh, campus, college campus, university campus movement that has been very successful, uh, very fruitful in, in our country uh, in uh, engaging young adults, bringing them to the faith. And after <clears throat> uh, we invited FOCUS to come into the Hartford Archdiocese, it's already at stores for UConn, mm -hmm. and Bishop Cody of Norwich, uh, stores is in the Norwich Diocese, has told me 
how wonderful it's been to have them there on campus and, and how successful they've been. He has seminarians from Focus, uh, because of Focus. Uh, and so they finally came to, to uh, Central in uh, New Britain. There uh, we have Father Michael Casey, who is uh, active with them and at his parish in, uh, in having them there as a center for, for activities on the campus. And they're very enthused that they've gotten, you know, any number of young people involved uh, in, uh, with them uh, about the faith uh, and prayer, and uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to having uh, a get-together with them very soon. So this, this, and this is also something that's supported by the um, by funding from the uh, Archbishop's annual appeal, because it does cost some uh, money to 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 bring them in uh, for their work. Uh, but but honestly, it's it's really a tremendous thing in the country, and it, it's very very fruitful. Is there a secret as to their success in energizing young people to participate in the life of the church today that you know of? Well, I think without being uh, ideological or hitting people over the head or anything like that, they are very faithful to Catholic teaching. They have a very healthy sense of Catholic devotion and piety. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I remember uh, recently one of them told me that they invited a, a young person to join them in saying the rosary, and that young person was very moved by this, and it attracted other people to come and say the rosary. As with so many young people, uh, this has been reported constantly that Eucharistic adoration is proving to be very meaningful uh, to young people, and uh, which is kind of surprising because, you know, you'd think gathering mostly in silence uh, in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament, uh, you, you might think, you know, that that's not exactly a, a rah-rah kind of thing. Uh, and yet, many young people have been drawn to that. Of course, it is the power of Christ. It's not what we're doing. As long as we center on Christ... Uh, and, you know, this is not about selling a program or an ideology yeah. or even uh, uh, some kind of uh, philosophy or, 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 or even not doctrines as such, but about but it's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. And so uh, I forget what the word focus, it's an acronym for something. I wouldn't be a bit surprised, though, that the focus is really on Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. It's interesting that you mention gathering in silence before the Blessed Sacrament in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And perhaps this is something which is a luxury for college students today because life is so hectic and rushed and harried. Taking the time just to reflect and slow down, to be in silence, to listen to the whisperings of of God in, in your deepest heart of hearts, I think is something that we all need to do, and especially young people need maybe the encouragement and the strength to do that, to slow down, to stop. And right, and it's Christ who's there to give them strength. I mean, mm-hmm. it's Christ. Again, it's not something we do. We have to make time for Christ. But if we do, and if we, uh, again, the definition of prayer, to raise our minds and hearts to God, if you raise your mind and heart to God, you know, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said it's like a fishing pole. You throw the, the line in, and, and you shouldn't be surprised if you get a tug at the other end. Well, that's what prayer is like, you know. You're, you're, you're kind of uh, taking a leap into uh, the world of God into the world of the spirit, uh, into what is unseen. And, uh, you know, there's actually somebody at the other end. Uh, it's, not just, uh, uh, it's not just talking to the air. Archbishop, uh, you also mentioned the New Catechumenate as another new group invited to the Archdiocese. Yes, the Neocatechumenal Way has, has become really kind of a worldwide movement founded by two laypersons, uh, one of whom is deceased now, uh, 
but they have been uh, recognized by the church, the neocatechumenal way, and they have uh, they asked to come into the Archdiocese of Hartford. Uh, these are kind of a, a, it, it includes clergy, but also lay lay people are, are very much uh, at the at the forefront of this, and they have been active in the Archdiocese with very very good results. And uh, now we are going to be blessed uh, to receive uh, some seminarians from the Neocatechumenal Way into the Archdiocese. I've shared this with the priests. This will be a uh, uh, help to us as well. So I'm looking forward to that. This is something new. I mean, many archdioceses and dioceses uh, in the country have already done this, and uh, the bishops are very pleased with it. So we can expect to have some uh, new seminarians sent to us by the Neocatechumenal Way. Archbishop, today starts Pastoral Care Week, which honors clergy of all faiths who provide pastoral care in congregations and in specialized settings such as hospitals, correctional facilities, mental health systems, the military, counseling centers, and such. And some priests are better at pastoral care than others. Can you suggest what are the qualities in clergy that make a person good at pastoral care? What qualities? Well, I suppose the most basic would be to be an empathetic kind of person who uh, communicates a real personal rapport and uh, and uh, kindness and care for individual persons. And uh, that would be different uh, for a chaplain in prison, or let's put it this way, that it, it takes a different form mm-hmm. for somebody who's working as a chaplain in prison than it does for somebody who's a chaplain in a, in a hospice. Uh, but the, the, the point is that, uh, you know, it's not just about sacramental ministry, although that's, you know, foundational for a priest. Uh, but it's about uh, really being the kind of person who empathizes with people, who has the patience to listen to them, who takes an interest, personal interest in them, and uh, who can give them uh, encouragement and, and consolation. Before we take a look at the road to happiness in life, let me make mention of the fact that Friday of this coming week, uh, we celebrate World Pasta Day. And, and I guess there's no better way to celebrate than preparing your favorite dish and enjoying the delicious flavors and textures of pasta. I think the Barilla people in Italy probably created that day. Or <laughs> probably. But or Mueller, your, Mueller, Mueller Spaghetti Company. <laughs> what's your favorite pasta? Oh, I like all of them. I don't have any particular favorite. Really? I, I think you like carbonara, don't you? Well, carbonara is getting a little too rich for my old blood. I do eat it and I like it, but I, I, I find it's pretty heavy for me now. All right, let's take a look then to the road to happiness. And this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis, some of the Holy Father's thoughts and addresses. This is taken from Pope Francis's homily at the Casa Santa Marta, delivered on September 3rd, 2013, and is called Imitate the Tranquil Light of Jesus. Pope Francis says, Jesus' light is not a light of ignorance. No, not at all. It is a light of knowledge, of wisdom. But there is also another kind of light, the artificial light that the world offers us. It's bright, maybe even a little bit brighter than Jesus's. It's bright the way fireworks are bright, like the flash of a camera, whereas the light of Jesus is a mild light, a tranquil light, a light of peace. It's like the light of Christmas Eve without pretense. It offers and gives peace. The light of Jesus doesn't make a big scene. It's a light that comes from the heart. What is Pope Francis really saying in this analogy of light, Archbishop? Well, certainly in the scriptures, light is um, very much uh, attached, and rightly so, from our, I mean, it's reflected in our own being as 
creatures that uh, we are drawn to the light. We, we're not made for darkness. We want to see things. And um, just as uh, physical light, created light, uh, is necessary for our living, uh, the uncreated light, which is of God, also radiates from the, fa the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, and uh, we remember how Moses in the Old Testament when he'd come down from the mountain conversing with God, he had to put a veil over his face because his face shone mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was intimidating. Uh, and again, uh, St. Paul reflects on that we reflect the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces because in Christ, that light, uh, you know, he's the light of the world, he says. And uh, we can reflect the light of Christ. That's what we're meant to do is to reflect the light of Christ uh, in the world in which we live today. Let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time, the 20th of October. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter, and after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, asking for your thoughts and what this gospel suggests to you. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Vindicate me against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her, or she will wear me out by her continual coming. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God vindicate his elect, who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Archbishop, what should we take away as a life lesson from this particular gospel? Well, I think in many ways this is a very mysterious gospel. It's one that calls for great faith because on the one hand, Jesus gives almost a humorous parable about uh, a judge who gives in because he's being pestered. Mm -hmm. And so he g gives justice to the woman, not because, um, you know, he's such a fine judge, but because she keeps pestering him. And uh, Jesus uses this as a homey example to say that God also will hear the cries of those who come to him day and night and will not be slow to answer. But the reality in the sinful world is we know very often it doesn't seem that God uh, acts. Uh, God sometimes seems to be silent and distant. And so it's very hard for us to understand uh, how God is answering our prayers when it seems so clear to us that uh, the answer, uh, that what we're asking is good and or, or it's deliverance from evil, and yet it doesn't seem to come. But then we have to look at the Christ and his agony and cross. You know, Jesus said, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. And it seemed that his prayer was not answered. And Jesus went through the ignominy of a horrific uh, passion and death. And yet we know that through that, by means of that, came about a glorious resurrection that far surpassed uh, anything that existed uh, that before the passion and death. And so I guess it's a matter of, of uh, understanding what Jesus means when he says, uh, that justice is done for them speedily. Our idea of speedily and God's eternal uh, uh, definition of speedily are, are somewhat different. 
Um, you think? And may, maybe that's why Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find any faith on earth? In other words, will people be patient enough and faithful enough to realize that, are they going to give up and say that God doesn't exist or God is powerless in the face of evil because God does not answer when and how we think he should? Well, Jesus tells his disciple a parable about this necessity for them to pray always, says Luke. Does this not imply that in order to secure what you want from God, keep praying, don't give up praying? Almost like well, the, 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 the woman in the story here, she pesters the judge. Is God inviting us to pester him with our prayers? Well, St. Augustine said God is asking us to exercise our uh, hearts in prayer. He says God, I mean, this is obvious, Augustine says God already knows what you're going to ask. You're not informing God about something he doesn't know. And you know that God wants what is truly good, uh, even though God writes straight with crooked lines in a fallen and sinful world. And I rest my case with the crucifixion, that that was God's answer to Christ's prayer uh, of of allowing this to to happen. So that's all part of the mix. But in the end, Augustine says, that person, Lord, is your best servant who wills to do what he hears from you rather than uh, wanting you to do what he wills. And and I think, uh, you know, Christ's homey example here of the judge doesn't mean that every request that people make of God is uh, is a good one, or that uh, that if it would be answered in the way they want, that it would necessarily be for the greater good. Prayer doesn't mean that because I want a new bicycle for Christmas, I pray to God and God will deliver. But as children, I think many grow up with that kind of an attitude. How, how would you suggest parents introduce children to the concept of prayer, Archbishop? Well, I think little children have a natural inclination to prayer. I think they have a certain sensitivity about spiritual things that maybe are run over roughshod in today's world more than they used to be. I don't know. But I think just by the simple uh, uh, introduction of real faith by parents, I shudder to think of parents who might somehow be blind to faith for their children or who who impoverish their, uh, and, and hamper their own children because of their own lack of, of religious faith. You know, that uh, what an enormous responsibility to give life uh, to a child uh, biologically, but also to uh, give life to them through, the, through baptism and through witness to fundamental truths of religion. I mean, and to, to, to ignore that or to deny it, I think is an extremely tragic and sad thing. But on the other hand, God can break through that too. You know, a person who may have not had the benefit of that in their childhood, God still can work and act in them. Can you go back several years for me into your own childhood? And... Oh, I got plenty of years to go back through, I can tell you. <laughs> well, do you recall anything in your own childhood, your growing up experience, how your parents introduced you to the concept of prayer, to what prayer meant? Well, yes. I mean, my parents weren't particularly active in our parish, other than my father being on the bowling team. Uh, my mother was taking care of my, her mother, my grandmother. We, she didn't have time to, to go and, you know, to the parish and be in a rosary altar society or anything like that. But, you know, in, in our bedrooms, in our home, there was a picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in one bedroom and a picture of the Immaculate Heart of Mary in the other. And uh, our all of our celebrations through the year of Christmas and Easter uh, were all uh, religious things, you know. I mean, filled with the faith and the stories of the gospel and 
And no, we did not say the rosary every day as a family or anything like that, but we certainly had the rosary and we, and we did say it. Um, and and uh, so, you know, go to Mass every Sunday, wouldn't think of missing Mass. Right. Uh, my parents go into confession. I remember my dad in those days, you know, it was still the old fast rules for Lent, which were stricter. And I can remember that, my parents observing that. So that's how we, you know, they just live the Catholic faith. That's yeah. how, yeah. how they uh, imparted the, the religion to, to us. And sadly, today, there's so many places where this does not happen. Or if it does happen, it happens pretty minimally. Not everybody. There are many good families out there. But there are a lot of people who are falling away. I'm sure your parents, like my parents, would make sure that we went to uh, Mass on Sunday as a family. And dressed up for the occasion. No, we didn't go as a family. You didn't? Sometimes we did, no. But we went, my parents a lot of times went to different masses. And Now, when I was real little, we, they probably did. But uh, when we were older, I remember we, we were uh, very modern in that sense. That mm-hmm. <laughs> different family members might go at uh, different times. And, of course, my parents sent us to Catholic school, too, mm-hmm. which made all the difference in the world, you know, uh, for nurturing that faith. It was just part of the air we breathed. It was just part of family and neighborhood. And, and did you wear your everything. Sunday best? To do what? To to go to church. Well, I I probably did. I don't remember, but my mother took care of all that. I did whatever I was told. Uh, there's a picture <laughs> floating around somewhere of little Johnny with a bow tie and in a little suit. Cute little thing. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let's take a look at some of the uh, questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Sharon from Roxbury says. My niece gave birth to a son over the summer, and she has been adamant that she will raise him on her own. Just last week, she told her mother that she heard God's voice say, a baby needs a family. Our family is very religious, but I still don't know what to make of this. Does God ever speak to people? Everyone wants to hear God's voice when they need to hear it most, but I always assumed it was just their own thoughts that led them in a particular direction. Well, Sharon, I must say I'm a little perplexed by your question. uh, She gave she's going to raise him on her own. Mm. I take it that I have to infer from that that she's not married. Uh, but then she also says a baby needs a family. So uh, I I don't know quite what to make of that. Uh, but yes, of course, a baby needs a family, uh, extended family, nuclear family, whatever you want to call it. But your question is, does God ever speak to people? Well, we have to be careful because we have what we call the discernment of spirits. You know, somebody can think they hear a voice that has God telling them to do something. And of course, sometimes people who are uh, unbalanced say that God's telling them to do terrible things. Uh, So I think uh, the way you judge an inspiration or you feel a call is it has to be discerned according to the faith of the church and the gospel, getting good and wise advice of spiritual people. It has to be tested in prayer. Living a life of faith makes all the difference in the world for of solid faith, Catholic faith. That's kind of the measure of what of what this uh, this uh, voice or call might be. And God would never speak to you telling you to do something that was wrong or hurtful of, of either yourself or of anyone else. Absolutely. Nicholas from Simsbury says, This past year I have read a good portion of the Bible and noticed that particularly in the book of Ezekiel there is the mention of a new heart. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, God says, I will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the stony heart from their bodies and replace it with a natural heart. What is God saying in this passage in regards to receiving a new heart? Well, hardness of heart was one of the great accusations of the prophets uh, speaking for God in the Old Testament. 
that the people, uh, this constant cycle of uh, forgiveness, uh, uh, well, of call and then sinning and falling away and then suffering and being repentant and then being forgiven and restored. And uh, this idea of a new heart, uh, which is a, a, the idea of removing the stony heart and replacing it with a natural heart, this is an indictment against the hard-heartedness of the people in not doing what God commanded, in disobeying him and following false gods. And, and uh, the prophet is saying on, on behalf of God that, that the day will come when they will be given a new heart, and uh, a real heart. Uh, and, and I think, uh, obviously, this is fulfilled in Christ, that uh, through him, through the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we can actually be given the grace to, to love God above all things and our neighbors ourselves and to be faithful. We oftentimes speak, too, of the hardness of heart meaning that one is cold and, and cruel and unkind to other people. So perhaps the heart of flesh is, is a call to better uh, kindness and compassion, understanding to our brothers and sisters. It's easier to love with a heart that is a human fleshy heart than with a heart of stone that is hard, cold, and calculating. Well, yes, but remember that the, the inseparable are the two great commandments the love of God and neighbor that that a person with that kind of hard-heartedness also has a hard-heartedness toward God mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, if they truly understand uh, God and what God uh, it, who he is and what he asks Jessica from Beacon Falls says with the month of November coming up I have been thinking more of the holy souls in purgatory it has never crossed my mind to pray for these souls until I began reading up on All Souls Day does sacred scripture mention anywhere that we should pray for the souls in purgatory? And if so, what can our prayers do to help them? Well, a couple of thoughts, Jessica. One is that I, if I were you, I would look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church about this to get a kind of comprehensive overview, which will also give you scripture citations. Even in the Old Testament, uh, there were offerings made in the temple for the sake of those who had died to pray for the dead. Also, uh, when you look in, if you would look at the readings for All Souls Day coming up, especially if you have access to a bigger lectionary, you can see all of the different readings that are chosen for those days that I think uh, can help deepen appreciation of this truth. Um, what can our prayers do to help them? Well, what do prayers do to help anybody? Just as uh, we pray for one another to be helped, so too we pray for those who are uh, in purgatory that the purification uh, of their sins may be completed, that they may be aided by our prayers in that. Uh, and that's a great act of spiritual charity, a spiritual work of mercy. Jack from Meriden says, what is the difference between tithing and weekly envelope contributions to the church? Well, you're kind of stumping me there. I guess uh, tithing is considered to be uh, biblical, and it's more in Protestant traditions of uh, a kind of... Uh, tax on one's income. Uh, now, it's a self-imposed tax, at least uh, in modern form, very often, but not always. You know, there are churches that require members to bring in their, their uh, forms for their income tax, and then they are expected to show uh, how much they make and to give a portion of it uh, to, to the church. So, I mean, I've heard of that happening in some Protestant churches. Um, 
but uh, tithe refers to uh, giving, uh, I believe, a tenth. Oh, I'm going to confess my biblical ignorance here, uh, a percentage of one's uh, uh, income to to, uh, for religious purposes. But uh, Sunday collection, those are uh, for us Catholics are just voluntary contributions that we make. And we ask everybody to please be uh, generous, but uh, you know we, we don't absolutely state what that generosity should be. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing? Lord God, in all things we turn to your love and mercy, and we pray that to the extent we still have hardness of heart toward you and our neighbor, that it may be transformed by the grace of Christ and the Holy Spirit to be truly a heart of love, uh, that we may grow in faith, hope, and love in all things. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner, and we look forward to joining you once again next week at 7 o'clock Sunday morning with a repeat at 11.30 in the afternoon. Until then, we wish you a uh, wonderful week. Thank you. You too. Thank you.